right. Well, I invite you now to turn in God's word to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. It's on page 1015 in the Pew Bible. And I have notes for you on page 9 if you'd like to use those. So as you're turning there, let me tell you why I chose this passage. Of course, if you've been here recently, Pastor Jerry has been preaching through John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. And the focus of last week's message was God's protection plan. God's heart for his people to protect them from Satan, who is our, our enemy, and also from, uh, from this world, from those who would seek to lead us astray. Uh, in that line of thinking, I wanted to uh, meditate a little bit more on the way that God protects us and the way that he protects us from our own desires. And I was led to this passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. So look with me now at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. This is God's word. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So far, the reading of God's word. I had an interesting experience this week. I was sitting at uh, swim practice, not my own swim practice, but my daughter's, and I overheard a conversation by two parents sitting near me. I don't know who they are. I didn't see them. I didn't ask their permission uh, to share this, but I don't know really who they are. So they were, they were talking about VBS. It's kind of weird. We've had vacation Bible school on the brain all week, and these parents were talking about vacation Bible school and their experience at a couple different churches. Now, uh, if you have kids or if you um, know people with kids, you know that sometimes families will, will take advantage of vacation Bible school and that it is almost like a summer camp. Through the whole summer, the parents, they look at their schedule and they say, okay, I can go to this church this week, this church this week. And uh, if, you're, if you're smart and if you you know, could use a few hours break each morning for the summer, you can send the kids to a different church. And do vacation Bible school just about all summer. Well, these two parents were talking about their experience, and, and one was talking about, uh, actually, a, a bad experience about uh, one of the leaders or the teacher of the class who was very absent-minded and didn't do a very good job, and these parents were disappointed, and I'm just sitting there listening, and I'm like, wow, VBS is kind of a big deal, and, and parents really care about it. But then they talked about another one where the, the teacher of a particular class was, was really good. So I thought to myself, wow, all of what we're doing this week is really important and people are watching. Um, today we're talking about what makes the church beautiful, what makes the church beautiful. And I'm going to unpack that as I go, but I want to first put that in the form of a question 
What makes the church beautiful? Think about that for a moment. What makes a church beautiful? You might think of a building. You might think of the, the way that we worship. You might think of the people. Uh, this past week, my dad was in town, and uh, on my day off on Tuesday, we went and visited the Washington National Cathedral. Now, my dad is a frequent visitor to D.C., so I was very surprised that I found something to do that he had never done before. And uh, many of you have probably seen it. It's, it's not too far from here. It's a massive structure. It took over 80 years to complete. Uh, some, you know, many of you have probably seen it, at least from the outside. Some of you have been on the inside. And when I saw it, I, my jaw dropped. I'd seen it a long time ago when I came on a trip in eighth grade, but I had forgotten how, how big and how majestic and how awesome. And it's obvious that the architect wanted to make something beautiful, wanted to make something substantial. That's what some of us think of when we think of a beautiful church. Yeah, and thank God we don't have to build a humongous building to have a beautiful church. That is a beautiful building. But what Scripture has for us today is something that all churches can do, that all churches can be, no matter how much money they have, no matter where they're located, we can be a beautiful church if we listen to what God says, if we believe it, and if we obey him. Now, some of you have, have, have not had a good experience in a church. You think of a church and beauty or beautiful is not a word that you would describe. Uh, if you are around a church for a while, you, you realize that the people there are not perfect, and people let you down. Sometimes we let others down, and it's hard to imagine the church being beautiful uh, because some of us have had a bad experience. Uh, but if that's you, I'm glad that you're here because you get to see with the rest of us what God's word says about what makes a beautiful church. And even a church that has gone through difficult times or even a church that has let you down, God can work in, God can redeem, uh, God will help his people. So here's what I want to talk about this morning, what makes the church beautiful and it's in two points. I'm breaking the mold. You know, you usually hear three points around here. Two points this morning. Because we have a beautiful identity in Christ, we can live out a beautiful life before God and our neighbors. So first, a beautiful identity. Look with me again at verses, or look at, with me at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Let me just stop right there. Like I said, we haven't been in 1 Peter, so the context of 1 Peter is that he is reading to a group of Christians, a group that have placed their faith in Christ, have been brought into God's family, but not everything is going well for them. You may have been told that before, that once you become a Christian, life gets easier and everything is okay. Uh, and... If you live a Christian life long enough, you know that there is a bumpy ride. So Peter is here to encourage them as they experience this bumpy ride that it's not that they did something wrong, but it's that they don't ultimately belong in this world anymore. They're in this world, but they don't really belong in the way that they used to. And he wants to encourage them to keep going in their faith. They need to persevere even though they are experiencing suffering. And it's often the case with us, too, that as we live our Christian life more faithfully, it brings suffering. It brings, in a way, difficulty into our lives. 
So Peter is writing to, to encourage these people that just as Jesus did good and just as Jesus suffered, glory is what followed. It's only through what Jesus did for us that we have been brought into God's family. But Jesus went through much difficulty to do it. He wasn't recognized by most of the people that he interacted with. But what he was doing was good and perfect and holy. And because we are united to him through faith, we have the same experience in this world. We also will suffer because we belong to him. But after suffering, there is glory. And Peter says, hang in there. God is with you, and this is the way that you're to live in this world. So he, he gives them, he tells them who they are, ultimately. This is really where it begins. What makes a beautiful church? It's a church that realizes who it is, who we are in Christ. First, he says, a chosen race. We know in the Old Testament that God's chosen race, his chosen people were the Israelites, Abraham and his children, but now Peter applies the special status to Christians. Why? It's because they have this new identity in Christ. Earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, he writes, Through him you are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. All throughout this letter, Peter is reminding these Christians that they are on the same level. They are of a high status they are God's people. Their neighbors, their world does not recognize them as being great or wonderful. But Peter's reminding them what God says about them. Again, how often do we get into trouble because we're judging ourselves by what someone else thinks about us? Or maybe we're even judging ourselves by our own hearts, how we feel on a particular day. When as Christians, we should be thinking about what does God say about us? Who does he say that we are? What set Israel apart from all the nations of the world is that they knew God and belonged to him. Peter says that this is now true of Christians in this world. The church, now composed of Jewish and Gentile believers, are God's chosen and special people. So even if your neighbors don't recognize you, even if they're confused about who you are, God knows who you are, and you should take comfort in that, that we are God's chosen people. Peter also says that Christians are a royal priesthood. One commentator put it this way. Royal priesthood means that, there are, that they are a priesthood and that they belong to God. Together the words indicate the privileged position of the Christians before God, belonging to the king and in the presence of God, end quote. So again, as Christians, may, we may tempted to think that... Um, we're missing out. Uh, we can't do certain things that the world does. And we may think that we're not privileged, but God says that we do have a privileged position to belong to him, to serve before him, to be with him. In the Old Testament, priests were the ones that served in the temple and they offered sacrifices, ultimately pointing forward to the sacrifice of Christ, really the, the last sacrifice, because Jesus was a perfect and holy sacrifice no other sacrifice is needed, at least in terms of atoning for our sins. But Peter does speak of sacrifices that we continue to offer, not, not um, the sacrifice of animals, but 1 Peter 2.5 says we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
when we offer ourselves to God in worship, when we sing his praises, when we serve one another, when we do all these things through faith according to his word, we're offering spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. We're offering ourselves to him, and we serve him in that way. He also says that we're a holy nation. Holy here refers to being set apart. God's special people have a special purpose. What is a special purpose for the people who belong to God? Again, it says in verse 9 that we are a people of possession. We're a people who belong to God now. What do we do? We proclaim God's glorious deeds. We proclaim our identity as God's people. We do this as a result of what God has done for us. Don't we sing about things that we love? Don't we sing about things that we think are great? Uh, The World Cup is finishing up today. Each country has their own songs that they sing to get excited, to get going. They sing because they love their country. They take great pride. Uh, I'm sure you all have your favorite songs that you sing. We sing what we love. We sing what we're excited about. And Peter says that the more we understand our identity in God, the more we understand how awesome it is, where God has brought us from, and where he is taking us, he says that's something to sing about. That's something to be excited about. And the more we get in touch with that identity, the more we realize who we really are in Christ, we will proclaim God's glorious deeds from the heart. What did the people of Israel do after they were brought out of Egypt, after they were brought through the Red Sea? Well, they sang a song, right? The song went like this. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown in the sea. And it goes on. But the people sang because they had just seen God bring them safely through the water, safely through the sea, and he took out all their enemies, the enemies that they were so afraid of. Again, this is a picture of God saving us from our sin. The Israelites were expecting certain death at the hand of Pharaoh and his army, and God took them out by his word, and through the ocean, or through the sea. And they declared his glorious deeds. The same commentator goes on, he says, Christians are to publish abroad the mighty works of God, which include his activity in creation, and his miracle of redemption in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The more that we understand about him, the more that we see what he has done for us, the more we'll get excited about it. Again, we're, we're constantly tempted to find our identity in what we can do and how much money we make and where we live and the kind of car that we drive. Uh, those things are all fine. Those things are all necessary. But God says, find your identity ultimately in him, and you do have something to sing about. Where do we come from? Peter says that we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaiming God's glorious deeds is natural for us because of the contrast from where we came from and where we are now. Listen again to verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is a clear reference to the Old Testament book of Hosea. Hosea was called to take an unfaithful life and to start an unfaithful wife and start a family with her. And God had some interesting names for the children that he had him give. Uh, One of those names was No Mercy. Imagine if that was your name, No Mercy. And another name was Not My People. 
This is what Israel deserved from God for being unfaithful to him. Again, as Ken read from Exodus 19, God's people had said, all these things we will do, we will be faithful to you forever. They had just been rescued from certain death. God provided everything they needed, and they said, we will be faithful to you forever. But throughout their history, it became clear that there were these inward desires, these inward desires to be like the other nations, these inward desires somehow to worship other gods, even though they had seen clearly what the one true God had done for them. And what they deserved was to be not my people. And what they deserved was to not receive mercy. But God told Hosea to go and bring her back. She had been unfaithful. His wife had been unfaithful. But God told Hosea to bring her back, to rescue and redeem her. And this also is a picture of what God does for us as his people. We don't deserve to have that name pronounced upon us. But God in his mercy not giving us what we deserve. He makes us his people through faith in Jesus. We have this wonderful identity and this wonderful contrast from darkness into light. So what makes the church beautiful is our true identity. God's people being brought from darkness into light to proclaim his awesome deeds. From this identity comes the way that we now live in this world. Again, it's, it's something that we sing about. It's something that we're excited about. Um, Back when I was in college, I had to take a test. If I passed this test, I was able to avoid taking a certain class, and, and I wanted to avoid taking that class um, so that I could work a little bit more. It just worked out with my schedule. And I'm taking this math exam, which I'm not super great at math, but I studied a little bit and did my best. And I got to a point during this test where I was guessing a lot. And I said, well, uh, I'm not sure if this is going to work. I'm probably going to have to take this class. So... I'm sitting there waiting for the, the results, and finally they came, and she said that you passed, and you passed by one point. <laughs> and Kirsten remembers, I texted her, I said, uh, glory, hallelujah, something like that. It, it, was, it was spontaneous. I knew that God had did it because the, the limit of my math skills uh, were clear. But I was excited about it. The people in the testing place could tell that I was excited about it. Uh, again, as we understand who God is for us, who he has made us to be, uh, again, we tend to interpret uh, our lives by how we feel or the way we look on the outside. God says that to be a beautiful church is to know who you are uh, on the inside. You know, the world talks about, you know, you're beautiful on the inside. Um, but what makes the church beautiful is, is that God has claimed us as his own, that we're his people, that we have a special purpose. So we have a beautiful identity now as God's children to declare his praises, but we also are called to live a beautiful life. Uh, one misconception that Christians or that the world has about Christians is that we only care about people's souls. We're, we're, we're so concerned about heaven that we don't care about this world. Uh, but this passage says that uh, if that's the case, then, then we're not living the way that we're supposed to be. We care about people's souls, but we also care about our life in this world. This beautiful new identity as God's people means that we no longer fit in the way we once did before in this world. But, this, but there is a reason for this, as we shall see. So look with me at verse 11. Beloved, again, don't forget, don't forget that. You see that throughout Scripture. Before uh, the authors of Scripture tell you something to do, they're often reminding you of who you are. 
So don't pass over that too quickly. We're, we're God's beloved. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Okay, let me stop right there. Sojourners and exiles, we don't hear these words too often. We see in the news sometimes about uh, people having to, to leave their country for persecution or because of war. So we see it a little bit. But sojourners are those people who are traveling and staying for a while in a strange and foreign place. They're not in their homeland. They're, they're perhaps traveling. Perhaps they're visiting for a period of time. But they're not in their home. And God says that this is a fitting description of who we are as Christians. When we trust in Christ, our home is no longer this world. We live here, but this is not our home. Our identity is in Christ. And we need to live out of that identity and no longer live and fit in to the way that our neighbors live. Unless they're doing a good thing. But uh, inevitably, uh, we will be tempted to live in a way that does not please God and we have a choice to make. Now, the fact that we don't fit in doesn't mean that we act weird. And by acting weird that our neighbors are like, those people are just weird. I don't want to get to know them. Peter is speaking about living an exemplary life. He's saying we should live a good life. All of the virtues that we see in our culture, things like uh, combating racism, things like treating people fairly, things like generosity, uh, these are all good things that we should share and, and bestow. But we should, be, we should be known for living a good life. Our neighbors should see us, uh, by God's grace, living a good life and living a, uh, a life that's accessible. We should be getting to know our neighbors. They should know us and we should be getting to know them. We won't fit in in this world because we live for something greater than what we can get in this world. Ultimately, without Christ, all of the best that you can expect in this world is in this world. Either the respect of other people or uh, some material thing. We're tempted as sinners to want to find our satisfaction in this world only. To find our satisfaction in what God has created instead of God himself. This is really... uh, how we're separated from this world. We, we believe that our satisfaction and what we're ultimately to live for is God and to know him. And the difficulty comes is when we still have these worldly desires. Peter says in verse 11, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Though Christians belong to this world, we are not yet perfect as we will be when we're in the presence of Jesus. We have God's promise that one day when we see Jesus face to face, we will be perfect. We will see him and we will be like him. But that is not yet who we are. We do get to behold Jesus now through his word. And as we see him, he's changing us. But yet we still have these desires within us uh, that are not pleasing. Not every desire that comes from your heart pleases the Lord. And we've got to be discerning. We are still tempted to find our identity and ultimate happiness through what we get for ourselves in this world. When evil and selfish desires arise in our heart, we must not obey. Instead, we ask God to help us and enable us to see his better, greater way. And that leads to true joy and not regret. If you've had the experience of of giving into temptation, you know the regret that comes with it. It seems tempting for a moment and you give in and then you feel that sense of regret. 
If you knew that you were in a battle, you would take care to prepare yourself, to arm yourself, and to focus on God's mission. I've shared this story before, but uh, back in the day when I worked uh, at Papa John's, I was a delivery driver, and before they sent us out to deliver pizzas, they, they prepared us uh, for difficult situations, such as uh, being robbed, and I had the experience of being robbed. One time, I pulled up to a house, and they always told us never to go into an unlit area, and I got to the door, rang the doorbell, no answer. I was about to call the number, and I heard a voice from the side of the house that said, I'm over here, and I said, uh, can you come out under the porch light? Again, this is what they had trained us to do, and being a nice guy, or I think I'm a nice guy, I was tempted to just do what, whatever he said, but I remember my training, thankfully, and I said, oh, can you come under the porch light? And he finally, he, he came over, and I gave him the total for the pizzas, and he pulled out a knife, and he said, drop the pizzas and walk away. So I said, all right. Dropped the pizzas and walked away, and I lived to see another day. I, I actually had to deliver a few other pizzas after that, after my visit to the police station. But because I was trained, because I knew that not everywhere you go is a safe place, uh, I had been trained well. I was aware of the battle. I was aware of what was going on. Uh, again, we, we, can't, we can't trust every single desire that comes out of our heart. Sometimes the desires are good. Sometimes the desires are bad. Uh, a good test is, is it for, would doing this or not doing this be for God's glory? Would doing this or not doing this be according to God's word? Or would doing this or not doing this, can I do this thing by faith? Or can I, can I avoid this thing by faith in God? Uh, if you can do that, go for it. But if you can't, if your conscience isn't letting you do it, don't do it. So what will keep us busy is we're avoiding those worldly desires. It's one thing to say, don't do this. Don't do evil. But God gives us something positive to do, right? He says, what, this is what we aim for, the glory of a good life. Verse 12 says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Maybe this seems anticlimactic that I'm telling you to live a good life. Like, wow, I was hoping for something really profound so that uh, we can be a beautiful church and that we can be a beautiful people before the Lord. But it's as simple as living a good life. It, it seems simple. It seems not so special. But the way we live is meant to lead non-Christians to glorify God. It's simple. We all want to do something great. Our culture tells us to do something great. Accomplish something great for yourself. The great thing has been accomplished, brothers and sisters. What Christ has done for us is the great thing. We don't need to do something great. Now, if God enables us to do something great, that's awesome. God gives different people. He gives all of his people in different ways. And we should want to be fruitful for him. But in all that we do, we should do it for God's glory. And oftentimes we want to do something great and we don't want to do something simple like put the dishes away or discipline our children or be patient with them. In Peter's day, the pagans accused Christians of being atheists, of being murderers, of being enemies of the state. Part of this was because they misunderstood what they were doing in worship. They heard about 
the Lord's Supper and, and eating the body and blood of Christ, and they were like, what's going on there? And then rumors were spread about, you know, murder and stuff like that. Peter wanted them to live good lives so that those rumors of Christians being evil, that those rumors would be dispelled. Now think about our lives today. What evils do non-Christians accuse Christians of today? I mentioned earlier, sometimes it's alleged that Christians only care about people's souls and not their lives in this world. Again, we should care about people's souls, but we should also care about uh, people's physical needs as well. Uh, Some will say that pro-life Christians only care about babies in the womb, but don't do anything for them after they're born. Um, Now, um, we care about both, right? We should. We care about... Uh, babies in the womb, but we also care about them afterward. Uh, when I think about a, a beautiful life, we have friends from seminary who um, now have four adopted children. They just adopted their fourth. And when I, when I follow them, when I see them, it really is a beautiful life. They're, they're, they're humble, they're faithful, and it is clear that God is blessing their family. They're, they're doing good. They're doing what's right. And Without even having to say much, their life is a witness and a testimony. And again, uh, even those simple, mundane things that you do matter to God because people are watching. Again, the example of those two ladies at the swim practice talking about VBS reminded me, wow, people really are watching and paying attention to what we do. God says that this is for the purpose that they would glorify God on the day of his visitation. When Jesus returns and when people see clearly uh, the God that they have turned away from, if, if they have not turned to Christ by faith, uh, they will see that God is holy, that Jesus is holy, but hopefully they will have also seen us living holy, faithful lives. So ultimately, they'll give glory to God. But what we really want is for non-Christians to see that our faithful lives, that they would see that the God that we believe in has really changed us. This is what we want. Again, we don't do these things to be seen. Uh, We do them for God, but being seen matters. I think of the scene in Seinfeld when George wants to give a tip. And as he's putting the money in the jar, the girl turns the other way. (laughs) He's like, oh man, she didn't even see. So he goes to take it back out. And as he's taking it back out, she sees and he gets in big trouble. Uh, We don't do these things just to be seen. We do these things for God. We focus on the right thing. We do things to his glory, and others will notice. God will take care of the results, and they matter to him. So as we finish up, what makes the church beautiful? Our identity in Christ and the good life we live in this world. Uh, A few months ago, the world seemed to be transfixed by the royal wedding. Uh, Have you ever wondered why so many people care about a wedding uh, of two people that they don't know and probably will never meet uh, from a different country, uh, most of us here? Um, I think for many of us, we cannot imagine a more beautiful wedding, right? Almost no expenses spared, uh, the gown, the the guests, the hats. It's it's a beautiful wedding, more beautiful than probably any of us could imagine, But did you know that the Bible ends with a wedding, a beautiful wedding, more beautiful than anything? Revelation 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, 
and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The Bible ends with a wedding. And we're not the ones who provide our clothes. We're not the ones who, who flip the bill for the wedding. Uh, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. If, if you are a Christian, if you've placed your trust in him, what adorns you, what makes you beautiful, is what Jesus has provided for you. He laid down his life completely for you, rose from the dead. He's preparing a place for you now. He's coming back. Find your identity in that glorious future, in that glorious event, that wedding that we have to look forward to. But if you're not a Christian, if, if you're maybe wondering, uh, could I be accepted? Would God be willing to do that for me? I urge you to trust his word. He says, come to me. He says, if anyone will come, come. All of us who have received Christ, it's not because we're so great. It's because we see our need for a Savior. We see that if God were to judge us by our righteousness, that we would not make it. And, and we have fled to God for mercy and found it in Christ. What he has done shows us completely that we're accepted, that we're clothed with him. This is the message that we want to declare to this world. This is the message that we live by ourselves. And as we keep those things in mind, as we meditate on those throughout the week, we can do those good deeds. We can do those mundane things. Some of us get to do great things. We can love the kids that God brings into this building. We can love the parents that are dropping off the kids and picking them up. Um, and perhaps God would give us a chance to talk with them about Christ. So what makes the church beautiful is our identity and the good life that we live. Let's pray. Lord, it's often easy for us to see our, our weaknesses and our sins and the ways that we fail. Uh, that is the very reason why uh, you came, Lord, is because we needed you. We needed you to, to make us beautiful in what you have done for us and to make us a people together who are a witness for you of your glory and of your grace and of your kindness to us. Make us a people that love to declare your praises Make us a people who meditate on your truth throughout the day and live beautiful, ordinary lives that are a witness and a testimony. And we pray, Lord, that those who see us uh, would see you working through us, that they would see that what we believe has truly transformed us. Uh, Lord, when we mess up, help us to ask for forgiveness even to those who don't believe in you. Lord, be at work in us, and we trust uh, that we are with you and in you. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.